Well, it's uh, great to, to be with you this Christmas season, and boy, it was really encouraging. Ryan was up here earlier with those two carnations, talking about two people who surrendered and gave their lives to Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't know of a better time of year to do that. Um, and, and so what we're going to be talking about uh, this Sunday, we talked about last week about our, our fears of the past and what we've done doesn't stop us from the hope we can have in Jesus Christ and our forgiveness in Him. And today, though, we're going to talk about the fears of the present and the fears that are out there that often grip us. And I don't know what you're fearing this Christmas, but that's probably a good question to answer and a good thing to think about. What, what is it that, that has you all worked up and anxious? And maybe it's something worldwide, you know, just the, the censorship or the, the, the war in Ukraine or, or what, whatever it might be, violence, drug epidemic, you know, disease, you know, but, but what is causing you fear this Christmas? Maybe it's a little bit closer to home and it's something in the home or your financial situation, and as you're thinking about your fears that Jesus Christ brings hope to, and how could he actually bring hope to that fear, I want us to just think about what they were afraid of before the first Christmas. And uh, to, to get into that, I want to talk about what Zachariah says before Luke 2. So Luke 2 is usually where we start the story. You know, there was this census and all the world needed to be taxed and, and you know, and, and the barn and the shepherds and the angels and all of that. Well, before that happened, uh, an angel appeared to Zachariah. Zachariah and Elizabeth were an old couple, like really old, maybe as old as Dick. Probably not that old, but they, they, no, I just, but they, they um, didn't have any kids, and they were past the age of childbearing, and he was a priest, and uh, there was a lot of priests, and only, only one could go into the holy place to offer sacrifices, and so they drew lots of who could do that at different times, and the lot fell on him, so he had the privilege to go into the holy place inside the temple to offer sacrifices for the nation of Israel. And while Zechariah was in there, an angel appeared to him and said, good news, you and Elizabeth are going to have a kid. And, and his name's going to be John, and, and he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. So the Messiah was going to save Israel, and this forerunner was going to prepare people for the Messiah. And so he says, that's going to be your son. And Zechariah's response was, give me a sign. Now, he either said that because he lacked faith or because maybe he was familiar with the Old Testament and that was not an uncommon thing for, for a prophet to, to ask for as a sign. And so the sign, though, was you're not going to be able to speak, Zechariah, until after this baby is born. And that's what happened. And he, he lost the ability to speak. And then when the baby was born, they said to Elizabeth, what, what should we call him? And she said, John. And they're like, yeah, that doesn't have a good ring to it. You know, there, there's no John in your family. Usually you name a child after an uncle or a grandpa or somebody. And uh, so let's ask, let's ask Zachariah. Zachariah, you, you want a little Zach, don't you? What should the baby be called? And he got a chalk and a, and a slate, and he wrote, his name is John. And they're like, huh. And then all of a sudden, Zachariah could speak. And these are the words that came out of his mouth, a prophecy, a prayer to God. He says, praise be to the Lord, God of Israel, because he's come to his people and redeemed them. That word redeem really means to buy out of. It's most commonly used 
in reference to slavery. If you were a slave and you were redeemed, it means you were bought out of slavery and now you're free. And so he's describing Israel's situation back then under Roman rule like slavery. And so he says, boy, but you have come and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation. Now, this isn't a French horn of salvation or a trumpet. This is actually a bull's horn, and it was symbolic of power and strength. So he's saying, you have raised up a really strong salvation for us in the house of his servant David. We looked at that last week, how David had to be from the house of David or a descendant from King David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So you might think, maybe Zachariah is a little paranoid here. All who hate you, your enemies, but he was speaking the truth. The, the Jews of the first century had a lot of enemies and a lot of people who hated them. We, we often do this even today, right? We hate people who are different. And the Jews were different. They didn't have the same culture. They didn't have the same laws. They didn't have the same rituals. Everybody else, they worshiped random gods, lots of gods. The emperor was worshiped as God by some, or Diana, or Zeus, or Apollo, or all these, you know, and the more the merrier, and you have your own God. And the Jews were like, no, you're all wrong. There's only one God. He made everything. And so that was different. And then they, would, they were accused of being lazy because they would take one day off a week, the Sabbath. And so they, they just were not, let, in fact, there was a study recently done, I was reading about it, that said, what is the group today, what racial group experiences the most racism in the United States? And do you know what they found? It's not black, it's not Asian, not Hispanic, it's Jews, today in America today. And then they also said, how about worldwide? What group experiences the most racism worldwide? Again, it was the Jews. How about historically, over the last several thousand years, what group has experienced the most racism and most oppression? And again, it was the Jews. And so Zechariah is not exaggerating here. They were surrounded by enemies. They were hated. And he's saying, God, like, finally, someone's going to come and rescue us because they had lots of fears. They had fears financially. In fact, the story begins in Luke 2. This is a story about taxes. I don't know if you realize that, but it's saying in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And one of the great things about the Bible is Caesar Augustus in the previous verse, he's a real guy. Like, he's a historical person that actually lived. And Quirinius, for a while, people were like, ah, Quirinius wasn't governor at this point. And then they've since found out, no, no, there was a Quirinius who was governor, and never mind. You know, so, so this is actually historical stuff. This took place in real time. While Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, and that was the region to Judea, kind of like another state, and inside Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He was a descendant of David, and he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So today we have a census, 
once every 10 years, and the purpose of it is to properly apportion representatives, right? So we, we want maybe more representation in Pennsylvania, so we want to count every person. And if Pennsylvania grows in size, then we get more votes, you know, and all this kind of thing. We don't grow in size, but theoretically, if Pennsylvania were to ever grow in size, we would. But um, that's not why they did a census back then. Back then, they did a census in order to get more money because they wanted to know, is this a 100,000 tax area, 100,000 people tax area, or is it a 200,000 people tax area? And depending upon the population, they could gauge how much money they could squeeze from their citizens. And so there, there was a financial, there were financial hardships, even beyond the taxation they experienced. Uh, this is just a primitive time. Most people were farmers. It was subsistence farming. They made just enough to eat. Uh, most people weren't trying to get ahead. They were just trying to survive. And, and so there were a lot of financial fears that were there in the first Christmas. Um, they had political fears. The Roman Empire was brutal. And uh, someone corrected me on my Hollywood history, but there was a movie that came out a long time ago, and I thought it was uh, um, Charlton Heston that was in it, but it's called, it was Spartacus, and it was, um, I blanked out on the guy's name, Kurt, Michael Douglas, who's the old guy? Kurt's the old guy. It's Kurt Douglas in the 60s. So there's a movie, Spartacus. I did not see that movie, but it's about a historical thing that happened in Rome about 65 years before Jesus was born. There was a man by the name of Spartacus who was conquered by the Roman Empire. His city was, was defeated. And when, when the army would come into a city, one of the perks of being in the army was you could pretty much put someone into slavery, anyone you wanted. Grab just, yeah, you're my slave now. I'm taking you with me. And so that what was done to Spartacus. He was taken as a slave, but they realized, his master realized, this guy has some unique skills. And I don't know if it was his size, his strength, his speed, but he was then recruited to be a, a gladiator in the Roman Colosseum. And so I don't know how long he was there, but he was in his 40s, when he came to the realization that, you know what, I, if I am going to die, I'm not going to die fighting other slaves for the entertainment of my master. If I'm going to die, it's going to be for my freedom. And so he talked to some of the other gladiators and they conspired together that they would try to escape. 200 gladiators decided they would try to escape. And with a, with a you know, conspiracy that large, someone, the word got out. And so they heard, the conspiracy has been, you know, we've been betrayed. They know the soldiers are coming to kill us. And so they, they broke into the kitchen. They took knives and forks and whatever they could. And when the Roman soldiers came in, they killed the soldiers. They took their weapons. They went to the armory, killed more soldiers there, took their weapons. They got out of the Colosseum area and out of their prisons, started leaving Rome. Other slaves heard about what was going on. They joined them. By the time they left Rome, they had thousands of, of, of these slaves. And, and there, there was a Roman legion, 6,000 soldiers sent to defeat them. And, and the Roman general was very arrogant. He's like, these are slaves. They thought of slaves as like dogs. I mean, they're, they're stupid and they're, they're, you know, we'll just, we'll just defeat them easily. Well, 
him and his whole army was defeated. And, and then the rebellion really gained strength. And within a matter of weeks, he had 70,000 men that had joined him. And the plan was, and they, they, went, they were going to the northern part of the Roman Empire, and they were going to get out into the wild lands and the uncontrolled parts, and they're just going to start over and have a new life and have freedom now. But they were beset by a second Roman army and then a third Roman army, defeating one after the other. And finally, Spartacus, for whatever reason, nobody knows why, but maybe he realized they are never going to let me start over. They cannot let a rebellion like this happen. It will undermine one out of every five people in the Roman Empire was a slave. This would undermine their entire system. And so then he turned around and marched on Rome. By the time he got there, he had 120,000 men. Multiple, they defeated five Roman armies at different points, but in the end, he was defeated, he was killed. Uh, 6,000 of his men were taken prisoner. The rest were slaughtered or some were able to flee. They took those 6,000 men and between Capua and Rome, there's a 120-mile stretch of road and every 100 feet they crucified a man for 120 miles every 100 feet. It took days for them all to die and they left their bodies up for years you imagine the gruesomeness of this? You could travel for four, five days and constantly across dead body, cross, cross, cross. And so the, this is the, the political situation they were in. Dude, our political situation in the United States is not good. It's not like that. And it's not like North Korea. And it's not like China. And it's not like Syria or Ukraine or on and on and on in so many places of the world. Those are people that have real fears, enormous fears. And yet Jesus came to a world gripped by those fears with hope. They had religious fears. Caesar was worshipped as a god. In fact, this is similar to Kim Jong-un. Um, is it Il? Is that the one who's in charge in North Korea now? Kim Jong-il, worshipped as a god. So this is a coin from the time of Jesus. And uh, on this side is Augustus. And on the other side is, is Augustus's father, C Julius Caesar. And so the, the back side of the coin with Julius Caesar over there, it says God on the, on the right. It starts with the word D is the word for God in, in Greek. And then on the left, it says Julius and then on the front of the coin, so it's God, Julius. Front of the coin says Caesar. This is Augustus. And then it says Son of God. And, and so they, they would worship their leaders. And so you want to try to find hope in your religion? Well, the government oppressors is also your religion. There's no hope there. And then beyond that, among the, the Jews, they had three religious groups, and two of them are mentioned in the Bible, the Sadducees, and they cooperated with the Roman authorities. They compromised. They were using the Jews' own religion against them to help manipulate and control the people. There's no hope with the Sadducees. Well, then there's the Pharisees. They were the separatists, and they, they stood for God's word, but they had such an impossibly high legalistic standard that no one could meet that. And, and there were fears of the Pharisees. If they're right, I'm afraid I'll never be good enough 
because of the standard that, that they have set up for everyone to follow, that they don't even follow. And then religious fears, the silence. There was an f- over 400-year period of time where God had not spoken through any prophet. That's a long time to be silent. Just think, what was 400 years ago? What was going on in 1622 or 1600? And what if God had said in 1600 that that there was going to be a Savior that would come to America and He would rescue us, and in 400 years we had lived under the enslavement of, of one nation after another, and no one came. No one's coming. And their fear was, well, maybe God has forgotten us, maybe those are just stories from centuries ago. Maybe, maybe that's, we have nothing to hope in. And it was into that situation that Jesus came. I think probably Mary and Joseph had family fears too. Of course, the, the first setup, Mary's told, you're pregnant. And what was the conversation like with Joseph after that? I'm pregnant, but it's okay. The angel said it was God. Joseph might have responded, you know, it's one thing for you to betray me and be unfaithful to me, but then to lie to my face. And you know how much I love the Lord to try to use that against me? At least you should have the decency to tell me the truth, Mary. Tell me the truth. Who was it? And then the angel appears to Joseph and he's like, I'm sorry, Mary, I was an idiot. Please forgive me. You know, I believe you. This is, this is amazing. I can't hardly believe it's true, but it's just awesome. But then what about the rest of the family? What about Joseph's mom? Are you still marrying that girl? How could you? How could you bring shame to our family? Like, well, well mom, an angel appeared to me too, and, and, and Mary's telling the truth. Oh, an angel appeared to you too now. Well, why didn't an angel appear to me? You know what I think? I think Mary's got you wrapped around her little finger, you know, and you're, you're supposed to be the head of the home and you're, you're buying her story and listening to her, ter- you know, fanciful tales. I don't think, oh. Joseph, it was you, wasn't it? You just couldn't wait. How I, I, I gave birth to you, I sacrificed for you, and now you go off and you get this girl pregnant and you come up with this crazy story and like, I can't believe You'd shame us like that. And I, I, I don't know what was going on, but I bet there was family drama around Joseph and Mary at this time in the first Christmas. And, and I don't know what's going on in your life. But I'm sure there's a lot of family drama. Well, maybe not for all of you, but some of you have family drama. Others of you, you have maybe economic drama and things are not looking good. Where is your hope While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and this little baby changes everything. The fears of this life lose their power when Jesus shows up on the scene. And I'm sure Mary and Joseph, when when the baby Jesus was born, I'm sure they weren't thinking, okay, so how much money do we owe in taxes? I'm sure they weren't, weren't talking about, they weren't talking politics, so what's Caesar Augustus up to or, you know, Quirinius and all this? No, I don't think that was it at all. And I'm, I'm sure they weren't even caught up in family drama at that point. They were like, he 
is here, the Savior. I can't believe this. And it seems like even as a baby, he would have been different. So where are you looking for hope this Christmas? Where does your hope lie? Because our hope has to be, in order for hope to overcome fear, what you hope in has to be greater than your fear. If you're afraid of a garter snake, I'm your man, okay? I am greater than garter snakes, all right? Barehanded, I can deal with them. All right, if you're afraid of, you know, a, a rattlesnake, if I have a hoe or something that's long with a blade on the end, like, I'm still your man, okay? But if you're afraid of, like, army rangers, okay, I am not your guy, all right? If you're afraid of a bear, I am not your guy either, all right? I've shot in a gun, shot in a gun. <laughs> where, where did I grow up? <laughs> I've, I've used a gun, you know, maybe 20 times in my life. I mean, I just am not, I'm just not good with that stuff. So, you, but, but who you put your hope in has to be bigger than your fear. And, and so if your hope this morning is you're in your bank account, you, you should be afraid. If your hope is in the government or in some political person, I bet you're depressed. <laughs> you know, because what you put your hope in, and so many people, we put our hope in, in a person. You put your hope in, boy, if I could get married, then I'd be happy. <laughs> should never put such a burden on someone to... To, to fulfill your hopes and dreams all in one person, that, that's not big enough. You know, put, putting your hope in a religious institution, putting your hope in a religious leader, don't put your hope in me. I'm not bigger than your fears. I can't do anything about your fears. Right? We, we need someone bigger than our fears to put our hope in. And that's the irony of the baby Jesus. That little baby, bigger than all their fears. Because he was God in the flesh. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And this is, I think there's a place in many people's lives, not everybody, there's a time and a place where you, you evaluate your life and you say, this is not the way I was expecting my life to go. I am not where I wanted to be at this point. I thought things would be different. This is often called a midlife crisis. But it can happen at 19. It can happen at 90. And so, sometimes it's bad because people get rid of all the good things they've been doing in their life and they reevaluate and they decide to go after selfish, stupid things and they destroy their life even more. But it's a good thing if a midlife crisis, whether it's at 19 or 90, causes you to evaluate and say, you know what? I've been living for me, and I'm not where I need to be. I need to start living for God. But thinking of this story, if you were to ask Mary and Joseph, is this how you would have planned it? Is, is, this, is this what you were expecting, you know, when you were thinking of having a baby, and then you found out the baby was going to be God? And, and you know, is this, is this what the plan was? In fact, I wonder if they get to to Bethlehem and there's no room, right? So it's almost like they came late 
And I, I wonder if, if they stayed in Nazareth as long as they possibly could. Because surely God would want this baby born among family and friends. And maybe Mary even had, you know, a midwife that she was a family friend with. And maybe that midwife had even been there for Mary's birth. And, and you know, you'd have her mom there with her. And just, you know, this whole picture. Mary, how do you picture your first baby? And she probably would have said, well... You know, Martha, the midwife, would have been there with me, and my mom, you know, Elizabeth, would have been there too, and Joseph and the family around in a nice, clean environment. And if you talk to her, they'd be like, what? And Joseph too, you know, why? Mary just say, why would God be born? And, and we're all alone. Maybe you would have said, well, Joseph was there. I was all alone. <laughs> no, we're not completely useless as husbands. But, you know, God's plan is different than our plan. But is it better? It had to be Bethlehem. That was the prophecy. That, that was the way it had to be. And how much better is the story that he's born in a barn and put in a manger? That's what we always talk about. Why? Because it's so mind-blowing that God would humble himself and, and to do that. And it's so much better the way God wanted it. And I know there's people here today, and there's a lot of us, and we look at our lives and we're like, how could this be good? How could my life be good? How could this plan God has for me to be good? My daughter overdosed. My son took his own life. I'm on my third or fourth marriage. I, I've declared bankruptcy. I'm, I'm so deep in the hole, there's no way out. I, I, you know, and, and situation after situation, we're like, God, this is terrible. This is, this is not a good plan. And I'm not saying we should sin. So that God's grace would abound, but I'm telling you, if you, have, if you have turned from your sin and your life is committed to Jesus Christ today and you want to follow him, then, then God is working an awesome plan, even if you have no idea what that would be and it's so confusing and seems awful that Jesus would be put in a feeding trough, a manger, And these, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were terrified. I, I don't think of shepherds as wimps. These are manly men, right? I mean, they're sleeping out under the stars, and they're wild animals. They're keeping them at bay and that kind of thing, and they are terrified. Angels, compared to God... An angel is this teeny tiny, weak servant compared to God. And these angels are terrifying. In fact, if you follow angels in the Bible, you know what the first thing is that they always say. The angel said to them, do not be afraid, because everyone's always terrified of them because they're so powerful. You know, I want to put my hope in a God who's teeny tiny, Weak compared to him, servants are terrifyingly powerful that grown men fall on their faces scared to death. That's a God that's bigger than my fears. That's the God 
that I want to follow. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news. That word is gospel. I bring you gospel that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Some of you, depending on your translation, it might say, He is the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ. It's not His last name. It's His title. And Messiah means Savior, and it means Lord. And so who is or what is your king? What is your Lord? and sa- Who is your Lord and Savior? Who, who are you following? Because what you hope in is your king. And again, if you're hoping in a marriage or a child or a bank account or, or some political change in the wind or, or America or whatever, if you put your hope in that, then that is your Lord and that is your master and that is your king and that's who you serve. And I think most of us, we learn pretty early on that we shouldn't put our hope in another person because that person can let us down and disappoint us. And so what the world says is, yeah, don't put your hope in any other person. Put your hope in who? Me. That's better. I'm way, a way better plan, totally different. Don't put your hope in another person. Put it in a, you as a person. And, and that's an awful plan. Because we aren't, we aren't great enough to live, a, I mean, to live your life for you? What kind of great cause is that? What kind of great Lord is that? What power do you have over your fears? None. And this is what Jesus came to communicate and what was so shocking to his disciples, to probably even his parents, to, to, to the, all the people was when Jesus came and they're like, wow, you're our Savior and Lord. And they thought you're going to save us from them. Right? That's why the Messiah comes is to save us from the Romans, to save us from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and these religious cults, to save us from, from those guys out there. But Jesus, he needed to save us from an enemy even worse than them. He needed to save us from ourselves. I am my own worst enemy, so are you. And, and Jesus came to be our Lord, your Lord. And in order for him to be your Lord, you've got to get off the throne of your life and give your life to him. And I'm going to close in a prayer in a little bit that, that can help you do that. But before I close in that prayer, I just want to challenge you. Um, if you are already a follower of Jesus Christ, what does it look like? What does it mean for Jesus to be your king this Christmas? What does God want you to do as your king? What are his orders for you? I can't necessarily tell you his orders. I mean, the Bible can. But how do you implement that into your life? And, and I have been impressed recently with how unimportant and insignificant good intentions are. Good intentions are almost worthless. As the proverb goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And so if you're here this morning and say, you know what, the next step God has for me and, and God is my Lord and Savior, he, he wants me in following Him to be a better husband. That's a pretty worthless statement. 
because it's just an intention. It's just an aspiration. But if, if that's what you feel like God is wanting to do, maybe it's, uh, I need to spend the first four hours of my day off serving my wife and being with her or doing whatever she wants. You know, or, or I need to spend the first 15 minutes when I'm home just giving, and maybe if you're, you know, the wife, you're saying maybe the first 15 minutes my husband comes home, I give him my undivided attention. You know, or, or whatever it might be. Um, maybe, maybe God is, you know, saying to you and you're thinking, man, I, I need to spend more time with my family. Again, great aspiration, terrible plan. What does that mean, more time with my family? Does it mean I have adult children? I'm going to write every one of my adult children once a month a letter. Or, or maybe it means I'm going to buy one of those books at the, at the kids' ministry area and I'm going to spend 15 minutes every night reading to, to my kids before they go to bed or whatever, like, like specific. I, I need to spend more time in prayer. That's what God wants me to do. Well, that's an awful goal. What does that mean? Maybe, maybe what it means is before I get home every day, I'm going to pull over. I'm going to pull my car over on the side of the road or in that one parking lot or in that one, under that one bridge or wherever it is, and I'm going to pull over and I'm going to spend 10 minutes in prayer every day after work before I get home. Or maybe I'm going to come every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock and I'm going to meet in that cafe room with whoever's there and for 45 minutes, from 8 to 8.45 every Sunday morning, I'm going to spend time in prayer. You know, what specifically, if Jesus is your Lord and King, what specifically does He want you to do and what is your plan? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just thank You that You sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for me. And God, I just ask that if there's anyone here who has never surrendered their life to You, or maybe did that years ago and have been running from you. Lord, I just pray that, ask that you they would pray along with me and that they would, they would give their life to you today. God, that they would say with me that I am a sinner and I've done things wrong and to hurt you and to hurt other people. And I ask that Jesus would pay the penalty for that sin, that he, his death on the cross, that he would die instead of me. And God, out of gratitude, I just thank you for, for your Holy Spirit and, and for your word and for Jesus. And I, I just want to give you my life, not just my Sundays, not just 10% of my money, not just one or two relationships. God, I, I want to give you everything. I want to make you my Lord, my Savior, you are my Messiah. Help me to follow you from this day forward. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.